Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a study in the book of Ecclesiastes called Unsatisfied, The Search for Meaning. We're learning that chasing after satisfaction apart from God will leave us empty. Thanks for joining us. This is a picture of Immaculate Illa Bagiza. In 1994, during the Rwandan genocide, the Hutu ethnic majority killed 800,000 people from the Tutsi people group. Her village was attacked and destroyed. She survived hidden for 91 days with seven other women in a bathroom that was three feet by four feet. Every other member of her family was killed. She was the only survivor. Over the past several years, nearly 400,000 people have been killed in Aleppo, Syria by their own president, Bashar al-Assad, and some help from Russia. They had found out that ISIS had a few people living in their city, so al-Assad and Russia decided to bomb the city and turn it from a World Heritage Site into a wasteland. When asked about this, Bashar al-Assad said, this is the price that some people have to pay. Omran Daknish is a seven-year-old boy from Aleppo, Syria, who hadn't done anything wrong. He was out playing, and his home was bombed and much of his family killed. But that's the price you pay to be liberated, right? Walter McMillan was a black man from Monroeville, Alabama, who was falsely accused in the 1980s of raping a white woman. He spent over 10 years on death row before common sense prevailed and a court recognized the entire legal system had failed him, and his case was a total lie and a total sham. You can read about his story in the excellent book, Just Mercy, by Brian Stevenson which talks about the injustice of systemic racism in our prisons being filled with black men and women who have been falsely accused of crimes or received much harsher punishment than their white inmates. In 2015, ISIS marched 21 Egyptian Christians, our brothers and sisters in Christ, to a beach in Tripoli, Libya, where they beheaded every one of them because they wouldn't renounce their faith. On July 27th of this year, Lieutenant Aaron Allen of the Southport Police Department, he was their Officer of the Year in 2015, was shot and killed just outside of Indianapolis while on a routine patrol doing his job. He left behind a wife of six years and two children. Last Sunday, 58 people were killed and over 500 injured in Las Vegas in the worst mass shooting in United States history. There have been over 700,000 abortions this year in the United States, over 30 million worldwide. Somewhere around 3,000 abortions will be performed today, and since our service started at 9.30, there's been about 60. I could go on and on and on. We don't have to look hard to see genocide, terrorism, slavery, sex trafficking, street children, the poorest of the poor getting poor, legal immigrants finding it hard to get a decent job and being oppressed by the government, fathers abusing their wives and children. Friends, we live in a world, if you have not seen this, we live in a world where injustice runs wild. It's not all that different from the world of King Solomon. I think sometimes we say things like, oh, it's just getting worse and worse and worse. And in some ways it is, but this has been going on for thousands of years. 
Solomon saw this as well. And so we're in week five of a series in the book of Ecclesiastes, a book in the Old Testament. It's a series called Unsatisfied. It's a study where we've been seeing what Solomon observes in the world he lives in, and then he asks questions about it. If you're following in your notes today, Solomon asks hard questions to push us to have a deeper faith. We've been using that word goads us. He pushes us to have a deeper faith, to place our trust in God alone. And ultimately, Solomon's conclusion in Ecclesiastes, if you're following in your notes, is that a life lived apart from God will leave us unsatisfied. If all we're living for is life under the sun, we will be a miserable people. And that is certainly true of the subject we are going to look at today. So if you have a Bible with you, would you open it to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16. Ecclesiastes is a little more than halfway through your Bible. You'll come to Psalms and Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes. If you don't own a Bible, there are black Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. I encourage you to follow along as we make our way through this text. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible home with you. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. But we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16. It's page 462 in those black Bibles. As we begin, let's read Solomon's observation together. It's in the first gray box on your notes. This is Solomon's observation. I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. If you're following in your notes, Solomon observes injustice in the world. That's his observation, injustice in the world, man's inhumanity to man. And you can read in this, I I think if we look at this text closely, we can see that Solomon actually expects to find fairness, and he expects to find equity, but he only sees wickedness. Solomon is saying, this is not how things are supposed to be. This is not the way they're supposed to be. And the reason I think Solomon knows that is because the God he was taught about as a child and the God that he worships, if you're following in your notes, is a God of justice. He's a God of justice. And Solomon's looking around and saying, this is not right. Justice in the Bible. There are three words in Greek and Hebrew that used to describe justice, and these words are interchangeable, if you're following in your notes, with the word for righteousness. Interchangeable. For righteousness, what is right, the way things are supposed to be, the way things were intended to be. And closely associated with justice, and one of the most holistic words for justice, is the Hebrew word shalom. You've probably heard that before. It's a greeting we hear sometimes. Shalom. Which means peace and wholeness. So justice, and you may want to write this in on the side of your notes. I wish I had more room. I I ran out of room. But justice most simply means putting things right again. It's putting things right again. It's fixing and repairing and restoring broken relationships between God 
and each other. It's a return to God's original intent in the Garden of Eden. Listen, we frequently think of injustice as this individual thing, right? And it is an individual thing. But in the Bible, it's so much bigger than that. It's a restoration and a restoring things to what is right. Scripture consistently reveals God's heart for justice. It's part of His very nature. I could literally stand here and read to you over 500 passages of Scripture that talk about God as a God of justice, but let me share with you just two for our time's sake this morning. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, it says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. You go to the Psalms, the the worship book of Israel, of God's people, and it says, He defends. You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed. God is a God of justice and He identifies with the oppressed. Over and over again, if you read the Old Testament, several classes of individuals are going to pop up again and again that God identifies with. It is the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. All over the place. And while we would like to think things are different today, they're not. And I think this quartet of the vulnerable might even be expanded to the refugee, the migrant worker, the homeless, African Americans, and many single parents. Solomon observes this injustice and he knows it's not the way things are supposed to be. We observe this injustice and there's something in us that knows this is not the way things are supposed to be. And it's not this way because not only is God a God of justice, if you're following in your notes, God's people are to be people of justice. God's people are to be people of justice. God set apart a people, the Hebrew people, the Israelites, to be image bearers of Him. They were to live their lives in such a way that they reflected the character of God. And one of the primary characteristics their life was to reveal was justice. And when Israel, when God's people repeatedly turned away from God and they practiced injustice, The prophets made clear God's expectations for His people to stop doing wrong, to learn to do right, to seek justice, to encourage the oppressed. The prophet Micah summed up what God wanted from His people in Micah 6.8. Would you read this with me on the screen? This says, And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God? God was and is a God of justice, and He wanted and wants His people to be people of justice who administer and practice justice and righteousness to others. This is what he intended when he created the world. But as Solomon looks around, he realizes justice is not going to happen under the sun, not completely. 
not among sinful human beings. So he continues in verse 17. He said to himself, then would you read with me what he's thinking in the second gray box on your note? Solomon said to himself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. So if you were here last week, Steve gave that famous text in Ecclesiastes. There's a time for everything. There's a season for everything. The birds made a song about it. It's probably the most well-known passage in the entire book. And what Solomon is saying is he's reaching back to that, and he's saying if there's a season for everything and every time under heaven, then there is a time for injustice, but there must be a time for justice. And what we need to know, friends, is God doesn't turn a blind eye. Even though it seems like he's left the madness unattended, a day is coming in which God will make himself plainly known. He alone will speak, and every creature and every person will listen. And that means that those who have oppressed others and practiced injustice here under the sun will be judged. God will bring about shalom once and for all. He will make things right by judging evil. And this is how Solomon pushes us to trust God to make things right in the end. Are we trusting things under the sun or above the sun? Because there will be a day when all injustice is dealt with. Ultimately, this is why our hope does not lie with our government or politics. Our hope lies in God and his son Jesus because he has promised a day when his son will judge the righteous and the wicked. This is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 25 when he separates the sheep and the goats. There will be a separation. There will be a separation. And so Solomon pushes us to trust that God knows what's going on and that he knows what he's doing. And if you're like me, I, I, I ask the question, well, why doesn't God judge evil? And I think some, a lot of us might ask that question. If you're following in your notes, the question isn't, will God judge? Because we know he will. The question is, why not now? Why not now? And as I studied for this, I, I believe God does not judge right now because God's heart is that everyone would be saved. It's his heart that everyone would be saved. We see this in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 18, he says, For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. You jump to the New Testament, and we see the Apostle Peter says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And here's why I'm thankful for this. I, I prayed about this this week because I struggle with this. And God revealed two things to me. One, I'm thankful God is patient in his judgment. I'm thankful he didn't judge me in 1997, in 98, in 99 when I wanted to do what I wanted to do and live the life that I wanted to live with no regard for him. Thank you, God, that you didn't instantly judge me there. And the second reason, it questioned my motives. It reveals my heart because I have to wrestle with God, the people in ISIS who behead people, and people who bomb cities, and people who traffic women. Do I really want them to be saved? 
or do I want them punished? And Jesus says, I want them to be saved, knowing that not all of them will be. But do we have a heart like His that wants salvation over punishment? And so I'm thankful that He's patient to give people a chance to repent and turn to Him. But there will be a day. There will be a day where evil is judged. Most of us are scared to death of that word judgment, right? Like, don't, don't say that word. It frightens me. And, and I want you to know, if you are following along in your notes, God's judgment not only condemns, it vindicates. Judgment is not a bad word. Brothers and sisters in Christ who experience oppression now will one day be vindicated and made right. Judgment is a good thing. It sets things right. And God has to judge because it's his character to be just. And if he doesn't judge, then he's not just. There will be a day where God will deal with evil once and for all. There's a time coming where everything will be made right, and Solomon pushes us to have a view that's above the sun. Pushes us to a deeper faith. Can I make just a one pastoral comment here? When we talk to friends about injustice or when we're talking with someone who has been oppressed or someone who is going through a difficult season of loss, let's not be people who give trite answers. Like, don't say, well, this is just what God wanted. He's sovereign. That must have been His will. You you know what? God needed another angel in heaven. That must have been God's will. Well, you know what? I don't think September 11th, and I don't think Columbine, and I don't think Sandy Hook, and I don't think ISIS, and I don't think the shooting in Las Vegas, and I don't think babies that die, and I don't believe broken marriages, and I don't believe domestic violence, and I don't believe racism is God's will. I think it's pure evil in the world. So let's not be a people who give trite answers and try to tie a nice little bow on mysteries that we can't explain. Here's what people need when we're sitting with them. They need for us to sit with them and weep with them like Jesus did at his friend Lazarus at the tomb. That's what they need. Let's be people who mourn and weep and cry and laugh with others, not explain the unexplainable. So Solomon goes on in verses 18 to 22 uh, that our pardon and justice in the world is death. We are not going to cover these verses today. There's a message coming up in just a couple weeks, and we're going to spend a whole message talking about death. You can look forward to that one. Uh, we're not going this, to, this is all, this is already heavy enough. I don't want to talk about that today. So you're going to hear about that in a couple weeks. But here's what I do want you to know. If you go home and you read these verses, please do not think that, that Solomon is saying humans and animals are alike. It can be a confusing text, but don't think he's saying we're just alike. Humans are made in the image of God. What Solomon is saying is that we all die, whether we're animals or humans. So, same fate, we all die. And so what Solomon acknowledges in chapter 3 is that there is a time for justice and there's a time for judgment. But then we get to chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and he's clear that that 
judgment is not happening right now. And so if you're following along in your Bibles, I'm going to read chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Solomon says, Again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. Solomon spirals back into despair. And he, again, witnesses ungodly oppression by evil people who use their power to control others. And it makes him envy the dead and the unborn because they don't have to see this wickedness, this evil. And the people of the Old Testament, including Solomon, they looked forward to a day when everything would be made right again. They longed for this, and they never saw it. They never got to see it. But fortunately, we live on this side of the cross. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus entered the world as a baby on a rescue mission to begin a revolution to complete what the people of Israel could not do, bring justice and righteousness to the world. If you're following in your notes, God displayed his justice for us on the cross. He displayed his justice. It was actually an inversion of justice. Jesus bore the penalty for our sin in order to begin the revolution of setting the world right again. He became sin so that we who had sin might become righteous and image bearers of the one who is righteous. And on the cross, Jesus affirmed God's character of justice. It was the greatest display of it. And in his teaching, if you're following in your notes, Jesus set apart a new people, the church, to be a people of justice, a people of a new kingdom, a new way of living. And at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus gave an inaugural address called the Sermon on the Mount. In that sermon, he gave a list at the very beginning called the Beatitudes. They're characteristics of the kingdom. What will this kingdom look like that he began in his death, resurrection, and ascension? What does this new kingdom look like that we're part of? And they sound very familiar to the words of God in the Old Testament and for the way God intended things to be. The fourth Beatitude struck me as I prepared for this message as we're talking about what will satisfy us. Would you read this fourth beatitude? These are the words of Jesus in the third gray box in your notes. It says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I mentioned this at the beginning of the message, that most languages interchange justice and righteousness. Both concepts are contained in different words. So when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's also saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. You can write that in the gray box next to the word righteousness. And that's because inner righteousness and outward justice go hand in hand. A person in a right relationship with Jesus will be intensely interested in setting things right in the wider world. 
Jesus wants our private faith to affect how we live publicly. And that's why when we follow Jesus, friends, we give up our rights. We give up our rights to be unforgiving and unkind and selfish and discriminatory and hateful and to exert power over others. We give up the right to become racist. Listen, the people that march in Charlottesville to to put down black people are not followers of Jesus. They may do it in the name of Jesus, but they're not followers of Jesus. Because they give up their rights when you enter this new kingdom, and that's no longer who we are. We cannot practice those things and call ourselves followers of Jesus. Inner righteousness and outward justice go hand in hand. But by translating this Greek word as almost solely righteousness, what I've done and I think what we've done with the fourth beatitude is we read it something like this. Blessed are those who really want to be spiritual, for they shall be really spiritual. Because we don't even know what righteousness means. Back to, it takes us back to the individual aspect of justice and righteousness, and that's certainly a part of it, because individuals are affected. But in the Bible, it's so much bigger than that. It's setting things right again. So I think this beatitude is saying something more like this if you're following in your notes. Blessed are those who ache for the world to be made right. For they will be satisfied. Blessed are those who ache for the world to be made right, for they will be satisfied. As followers of Jesus, we ache over what is wrong, the brokenness and injustice in the world, and we break free from the delusion that everything's okay because everything is far from okay. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for things to be made right because they will find immense satisfaction when and where the kingdom of Christ brings change. We will be satisfied when we hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice. So the question that I've had to wrestle with and that I want us to wrestle with, if you're following on your notes, do we hunger and thirst for his kingdom to come? Do we hunger and thirst for that? Do we hunger for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? For his government to come, his politics to be done, his rule and reign to come, his plans and purposes to be done? on earth as it is in heaven. Friends, may we live with the anticipation of the age to come when there will be perfect shalom. But may we embody the reign of Christ here and now as image bearers. May we be a people of justice and righteousness to this world we live in. And so the final thing I want to talk about is where to begin. Man, I think we walk in this room and the injustice is so overwhelming in the world we don't even know where to begin. It leads to a, a paralysis. How in the world are we supposed to respond to the events that are as tragic and disturbing as we have witnessed in our country the past few days, weeks, months, and years? And this morning I want to suggest that one of the most important ways, but often neglected ways to do justice is prayer. 
In tackling justice, we're entering the front line of spiritual battle. Prayer is a powerful and essential weapon. Just ask Annie Dieselberg in Thailand how important prayer is to fighting the demonic powers of sex slavery. Mother Teresa once said, I couldn't imagine doing my job for more than 30 minutes without prayer. And what I've learned is that seeking justice begins with seeking the God of justice. But what I think happens is we see these issues in our world and we want to jump to what can I do? But that's not because of prayer saturation, it's because of exasperation. And we don't even know what we should do and we don't even know what to pray for. And so the choice to pray, to ask God to listen for his voice leads leads us to encounter hope that trumps the temptation to despair. And there's a type of prayer in the Old Testament in the Bible called lament. Did you know there are more lament psalms than any other type? 65 to 67 of the 150 psalms in the Bible are lament psalms. We've listed them on the back of your notes for for you. But in our response to injustice, this morning what I want us to do together, if you're following in your notes, is that we begin with lament. We begin with lament. Lament is that unsettling, like it's it's uncomfortable, It, it feels uncomfortable, but it's a biblical tradition of prayer that includes expressions of complaint, anger, grief, despair, protest, but ends in hope, hope of justice, wholeness, and peace. Many of us have never been taught this way of praying, and it's often missing from the worship in our churches, including our church. But especially this week after what happened in Las Vegas, the prayer of lament is a place to begin as we seek to respond to the brokenness and the injustice. I know we want to jump to problem solving and fixing the situation, but I hope at least for a moment, can we lament together? In addition to petitioning God, lament allows us to stand in solidarity with the oppressed. Let me say that again. In addition to petitioning God, it allows us to stand in solidarity with the oppressed and those who have suffered injustice. It allows us to put ourselves into the shoes of the immigrants who have come to this country for a better life and the hardships they face. For the refugees who have fled their homes for fear of safety, with those held in the slavery of sex trafficking. Can we put ourselves in the shoes of the families that are mourning over the senseless killings in Las Vegas, with the single parents whose spouse didn't want to be married anymore, for anyone who suffered from domestic abuse, for the homeless in Springfield, with our black brothers and sisters who continue to experience systemic racism in America, for the law enforcement officers who lose their lives on the job, for the kids in foster care in Sangamon County, for the 153 million or orphans in the world? Can we stand in solidarity with them and lament with them for just a few moments before rushing to action? Lament allows us to do that. Let me say this to some people in this room. Prayer is what you can do right now in this season of life. Do not minimize the power of the role you have to play to break strongholds in this fight for justice. It is the front 
lines of the fight. Don't diminish your role. But for some of us, I pray we move from lament and move from ache into action. I don't know what it is for you. I believe God speaks to each of us individually and gives us issues that we have holy discontents with. What will that be for you as you move from lament to action? And it needs to move from lament to action. I was, pr- I was praying this week. So I get up early in the morning and I pray in our laundry room. I pray out loud because it's the only place that I won't wake the peop- uh, my family up. So I'm sitting in front of the, the dryer and I'm praying, God, would you help my boys know that I'm proud of them? And God says to me, why don't you tell them that? Or what about going to a doctor and he says horrible words like, you have cancer. And you say, well, what are we going to do about that? And he says, well, we're just going to pray. I want him to take some action. But it's got to begin with prayer. And it's got to be part of it. But if able, we move from lament and we move from prayer to action because inner righteousness leads to outer justice. And we want to be image bearers of the one who saved us, a people of shalom. And before we get to the doing good, we need to begin in prayer. And so this morning, we we want to train in this together. We want to practice this together because this is so different than what I have been taught or experienced. And so just to let you take a deep breath, we're going to spend about the next 15 minutes training in prayer. And I I understand what you might be thinking right now. I went to Joplin, Missouri uh, when I was in high school, and uh, the the pastor got up at the beginning of the service and he said, this is a prayer service and we're going to pray the whole service. And uh, when I woke up (laughs) towards the end of the service, I, I had missed everything he said. So I understand it's different, and I understand if your first reaction is like, oh my goodness, 15 minutes of prayer. But it's going to be prayer, and song, and scripture, and lament, and we, we want to be people, we want to be people who petition God and stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters. And we just don't know how to do it any other way than this. So Chuck and the team are going to lead us in the next few minutes in prayer. I'll start with, uh, with honesty. I, I'm with Brian. I don't, I don't know how to do this personally. And I identify with uh, the words of a late night talk show host who said regarding Vegas, I don't want to talk about this. I just want to laugh and I want to have fun, but it's becoming increasingly difficult to do so. It's as if someone has opened the door to hell. I identified with that. And so in my my prayer time these last several months, I don't know how it's been for you, but for me, I've come to the Lord just with questions, and, and I keep telling him, I don't know, I don't know how to do this. And he says, you need to enter in the pain. You know how the, Jeff talks about, just cross the ticker of my mind, it, you need to enter into the pain. I said, I don't know how to do that. 
And, he, and it's like he's saying, I've, I've done that and I can show you. I did it. That's why I left you, my helper, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, to help you do this. And, and the longer that I've thought about this, I thought, man, we've got to learn to do this. As a church, we have to learn to lament together. We've got to learn to enter into the pain together as individuals, as families, and as a church, or else we're just not going to be living in reality as we move forward. And so I've kind of got to this place where I want to learn. Let's learn together. Let's learn to do this. I was up in Chicago in July, and uh, it was really a privilege, the assignment that our professor gave us. I don't say that often about school, but I'm in school, and uh, he made us read this book, and it kind of wrecked me. And then he had all 12 of us. I've been walking with 12 guys for about four or five years in this class. He had us write a response. Some people wrote prayers, some poetry, some songs. And we sat in a room for about an hour, 15 minutes, hour and a half. And by the end, all of us were weeping. And uh, one of my best friends in this class wrote a song that struck me particularly. And I've been using it these past two months. So I want to start there right now. So I'm just going to sing this over us. I'd love for you to join. Let's enter into prayer together. The crowd surges and thunders. The righteous are howling for blood. My dignity is quartered. As death chokes the breath from my lungs, oh God, are your hands idle? Or worse, do you strengthen our foe? Why is evil left to prosper, breaking our backs? With its yoke. Oh God, arise. How long will you be silent? Oh God, arise. How long will you be silent? Oh, 
some get to live longer while some lives are cut short? Why are some dealt a hand so much better than others are dealt? And what are the names of the people who have lost? What do their faces look like? How many siblings did they have? they coping and why so much hostility father and what's my part in the hostility and what's my part in the hope and what should I do with the fear that I have of this coming closer to me Still before the Lord, let us bring our questions to Him. 
Maybe something has hit you closer to home. Maybe your mind is on another country. What's the Spirit bringing to your mind? Lord, we, we pour our, our hearts out to you. We come before you honest and authentic, knowing you can bear the weight of it. thinking of a, a 26-year-old friend uh, diagnosed with stage 4 cancer, moved to hospice just this past week. It's, you've just brought her to my mind. and Lord, where's the hope in that situation? Why? Why her? Why that? I'm reminded of the honesty of the psalmists as they cried out to you. So we use some of those words to come before you now together corporately. Why do you hide your face or so it seems sometimes? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Why do you withhold your hand? Have regard for your namesake. There is much violence. We are covered in the shadow of death. Don't forsake us. Don't make us turn back from the foe. Rise up and come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly to the ground. Pour out your spirit upon all flesh. Bring the nations into your fold. Hasten the coming of your kingdom. May your spirit be upon your people that we would be hope and light in a dark world, that we would be image bearers hungry for justice and righteousness and peace, ready to bring your shalom, ready to bring your justice, your righteousness, your kingdom. And we pray your kingdom come your kingdom come, your government come, your politics come, your reign and your rule in our hearts, in our families, in our church, in our city, in this nation. Yet will we praise you. Yet will we praise you. For there is no other your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Every heart pro 
together on the screen the prayer the Lord are taught us to pray this then is how you should pray our Father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As you leave today, these steps are sacred space. If you would like prayer, we'd be honored and privileged to pray with you after the services. And the Lord brought to mind this morning, as we leave today as his image bearers, because of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, we do not fight for victory in this movement of justice and righteousness. We fight from victory. He is one, and now we get to be part of his kingdom. So as you leave, go in his peace. Amen.